I am Erica. I am Kevin. I am Giovanna. I am adventurous. I am dreamer. I am creative. I am wine. I am dance. I am entrepreneur. I am musician. I am privileged. I am activist. I I am am podcast. Learning. Growing. Inspiring. Hello, all, and welcome to the I Am Podcast. Um, Our guest today is super, super special. We're super excited. Uh, Born and raised in Oxnard, California. 805. Yes. And she's dedicated 20 years to advocating for important civil rights issues, including mass incarceration, violence prevention, racial healing, and community policing. She is president and CEO of the Gathering for Justice, an organization dedicated to ending child incarceration, a nonprofit founded by the legendary artist and activist Harry Belafonte. Yes, and she is also one of the national co-chairs of the 2017 Women's March on Washington. So exciting. And founder of Justice League New York and California. She was named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People in 2017, as well as Fortune's 50 Top World Leaders. Wow. Oh, Amazing. I know. Okay. So please Ooh. welcome our listen. 805 sisters. Yeah. yeah. Mrs. Yes. Carmen Thank Perez you. Jordan. Yeah, yeah. We need some horns. We what an effects. intro. Burr, burr. Do you have anything to add to that? I'm sure you do. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a mom of a two-year-old boy, and I'm eight months pregnant in a week. Wow. So, yeah. 22. Never in my life did I think I would be having a child at 40. Yes. I was like, look, I'm over here saving the children of the world. I'm working inside prisons. I'm adopting all these youngsters. Mm-hmm. And um, God definitely blessed me at 40. He's like, well, actually, we're going to interrupt what you're doing. Oh. <laughs> and we're going to give you your own child. Oh. So, so, wow. Awesome. Wow. Amazing. Well, I want to jump right in because I'm curious to know how you got into this work. Was it something that you always felt like this was your God-given purpose? Or was there a pivotal moment in your life where you felt like you needed to do this kind of work? Yeah, no. Well, that's a really great question. I think a lot about our childhood growing up in Oxnard, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I grew up in a Chicano family. My mother is actually from Mexico and my father was born in California mm-hmm. and my community was really multiracial, multi-ethnic, predominantly low income. Um, and my teachers though were, and my coaches, you know, Pat Bell um, and friends were majority black and brown, mm-hmm. right? And so I felt very connected um, to a diverse community, you know, not only did we have black folks, but we also had Samoans, we had Filipino folks, yes. and we had like Rastafarian white people, like <laughs> what? It was just really crazy. Um, but you know, I didn't really know until I went away to college that what was happening in Oxnard wasn't happening in other communities, mm-hmm. like being pulled over by police. Um, I knew at a very young age that I wanted to change the world. I remember my sister changing me. I have an older sister named Letty who's about 12 years older than me. And she was changing me. And I was like, I'm going to change the world. And, you know, she left it off kind of like, okay, like, yeah, go back to playing basketball. And then 
I think a pivotal moment for me was when my sister Patricia, um, who you know, uh, was buried on my 17th birthday. Patricia and I were a day apart in two years. Um, And so she had passed away before my 17th birthday. So I was 16 turning 17. She was 18 turning 19. And um, at that moment, I didn't realize how short life was. And I think her death really taught me how to live. Um, I saw a lot of what we had experienced in other young people, but luckily I had basketball. I played ball since the age of five with Pat Bell and Coach T at Durley Park. I ran um, track, played softball, danced hip hop. Um, So everything, although we were facing a lot of trauma, even at home, with domestic violence or, you know, things that you just don't share with your little friends. Cause you're like on the court, you're just ready to get it in. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned by re- being, I guess, re-triggered or re-traumatized when my sister passed away. And then again, when I went away to college and just learning that other people's family members weren't being hogtied. I remember my brother picking me up from Guanimi high school and taking me and my little friends home from a basketball game. And we got pulled over um, and he got hogtied by police. And so when I went away to college to see Santa Cruz, I was like, you know, actually the things we went through were not, were not okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to actually fight um, to make sure that other young people don't go through the same things that I went through. Although I had a really blessed childhood with sports, there's a lot of injustice in our communities. Wow. I was reading a little bit, and I know that you got very involved at UC Santa Cruz with uh, just all kinds of, uh, I guess, leagues like the police, right? You were working with different clubs. Can you just tell us a little bit about everything that you did at UC Santa Cruz? It sort of really planted that seed. I mean, the seed was there, but I guess the watering and the growing of the passion that you sort of, and just the people that you came across life that just gave you that extra, like each time it was a new brick. So I just, I would Mm -hmm. love to hear about that a little bit. So UC Santa Cruz is a unique place. It's where I say the the forest, it feels like you're camping and like the only gang members on campus are like the raccoons that follow you when you're taking out your trash or like Bambi. It is, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me after my sister passed away. And um, I got to learn from women like Angela Davis who were professors on campus wow. and people like Aida Hurtado who were talking about uh, the color of privilege and Mm -hmm. also were um, helping me find my identity as a Chicana feminist. Um, And then I learned about a man named Nane Alejandres who was from the community Barrios Unidos and being somebody who parents didn't say for me to go away to college and had to pay for a funeral, I had to put myself through, through school. And so I went and I got myself some jobs and Really, I went to work for people who I had admired and who I had read about. So I began to work in the community for um, an organization that worked with young people called YCOR um, and created a youth program out of there. And a, a lot of the young people that I was looking at were a reflection of me. They just didn't have a Pat Bell or you know a Miss Duff as a principal. They didn't have like representation. They didn't have you know positive role models. And so they're using heroin or they were drinking or you know it's a beach town. There's a lot of um, you know racial tension 
um, in these communities. And so I saw a lot of these young people. I saw myself in them. And so I was like, I'm going to go above and beyond to really support them. And then I came across a man named Nane Alejandres, who's the founder of Barrio Sonidos. And I found a home. Um, UC Santa Cruz, I felt really displaced. There were no Samoan folks. Like, <laughs> you know, the people who, you know, I tried joining Mecha because I was like, okay, well, I'm, you know, Mexican too. And you know, I couldn't speak Spanish at the time, so I got kicked out of Mecha because oh, of like, no. you know, you, yeah, oh, they no. did. They kicked me out. I'm not the only one though that got kicked out. You know, they're like, you, you're from Okisnad, not Oxnard. I was like, what? Oh, um, yeah. But so like that type of, um, I just didn't feel like UC Santa Cruz was my home. Um, but I did find home in the community, serving the community, and so a lot of my, I guess, my radical came from seeing a professor that looked like me that really introduced me to who, you know, when I was growing up, I identified as hip hop and basketball. But in college, I was like, oh, shoot, I'm really a Chicana feminist. Like, I didn't know there were titles like that for me. And what my family's experiencing is like police brutality, you know, like, or target. It, it, it just... Going to UC Santa Cruz lifted that cloud that I had above me um, and really allowed me to develop the language that I needed in order for me to articulate what was happening in my community and, and to people that look like me and also Black folks. Um, so I really, that was my seed. I say I, I did my growing up in Santa Cruz. And then I met Harry Belafonte through my mentor, Nane. And um, I remember just kind of, not really knowing who he was. I was like, who's this man? Like everybody's like, basically, you know, <laughs> they worship the ground he walked on. And I had to do my research. I had to like really learn more about who he was. And over, you know, I've been with him for 15 years now. Wow. Um, and I've learned to this day, I still learned something new about Mr. B. We call him Mr. B. He's like, <laughs> don't call me Harry or Mr. Belafonte. That's so formal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think... I think Santa Cruz really gave, radicalized me. It gave me the opportunity to leave Oxnard, to heal from the trauma, and also gave me the language to go out and fight. Um, but then, you know, and I was doing things on a on a on a local level. I also was working inside prisons with men that were lifers. And in my time serving uh, the lifers in inside Tracy Prison, I got to see some of them go home, oh. and that was really a blessing. Um, you know, I would call them uncles or grandpa. There was a man named Ernie I used to call grandpa because I was like, I never had a grandpa. But so I would, you know, I would think of folks as my family members. Um, never did I think I was better than anybody just because I had the opportunity to go away to, to college. I felt like the young people that I served could have been my siblings or could have been my nieces and nephews. And then the men that I served in prisons could have been my uncles my brothers or even my grandpa. And so I treated them as family and have always had this passion for people who are incarcerated. And luckily I got to meet, like I said, Mr. Belafonte, who took me from, um, from Santa Cruz to New York City to the Big Apple. Man, talk about it. That's a Yeah. Man, I was in New York like last summer and I just the noise just by itself. I was like
overwhelming feeling after just being there 24 hours like oh, stimulation. I can't breathe yeah exactly mm-hmm. and you moved yeah. there I mean you went I moved there yeah. in five days I um Ooh, wow. I was in Puerto Rico with my girls and Mr. Belafonte called me and he's like you know are you ready and I was like I'm always ready sir he's like okay I need you here in five days uh we're going to be presenting and working with 1199 which is the largest um healthcare union on the East Coast. And I want you to be here for that. And so I went back from Puerto Rico to Santa Cruz, packed my bags. I had three bags. Um, No, I had two bags and three, um, I had two bags and three uh, hangers (laughs) that I still have. Uh. I took... You know those hangers that could hang all your pants? Yeah. I took yeah. those with me. <laughs> Take those with me. Yeah. That's a perfect and New so York I item. Didn't, <laughs> yeah. I didn't have a place to stay. I had to call a friend and ask her if I could crash on her couch. And so she let me stay with her for like two months. And I made it work. Wow. You know, I had to start all over. Um, you know, when I left Oxnard, I was certain I would never come back home. I felt a lot of pain with my sister's loss. And... um. And then I thought Santa Cruz was it for me. So never in my mind, you know, I had my little home, my little car, my cat, and uh, I had to pack my beach bungalow to <laughs> go to stay in Brooklyn at a friend's couch for a couple months. But it's been a blessing. Like I say, everything, I feel like, to your point, you said this earlier, it's what I do is is a calling. It's bigger than myself. There's a lot of sacrifice but um, I feel blessed that I get to meet people like yourselves or reconnect with people like you and and share this story because I could have certainly, I could have gone a different way. I could have right. completely lost my purpose in life. And I think, um, you know, things happen for a reason. But, you know, I was out in New York City planting seeds, building with people. People are like, what is she doing here? She didn't ask for permission to come to our city. I was like, man, when I go into prisons, they're not telling me that, you know. So, like, Uh, activists were really territorial. And um, I didn't understand it. You know, I'm I'm also sometimes very naive just because I'm so focused on the work. But, you know, it hurt. And... um, I found my way in 20, I moved in, I believe in 2010, 2011, 2013, I ended up reaching out to several people. And I was like, look, I want to build collective power with you. I want our generation to come together. I want us to build something together and come together like Voltron. And so we build Justice League NYC. (laughs) And um, I, I connected with Tamika Mallory, Linda Sarsour. I was talking to this gentleman named Marvin Bean, who was like directly impacted by the juvenile justice system. And somebody was like, oh, you should work with Carmen. He's like, she ain't impacted. Like, why should I work with her? And I called him and I said, look, let's do this. Like, let's not let that get in our way. And so I'm really about finding solutions and building with people. And so a lot of the work that you see, you know, visibly around Justice League NYC is really about the work of of a bunch of us that come together and really bring all our talents together and our passions and our resources. And, um, you know, we've marched from New York City to D.C. Nine days, 250 miles. You know, we thought we were going to Congress looking cute in our suits, in our heels. We couldn't even 
fit our our heels. <laughs> like our feet were so swollen, our kneecaps were like blown out. It was. It's been a learning experience, but definitely, uh, I got my ground in New York after two to three years. It took a minute, but I got it. Yeah, what a powerful testimony. It's really incredible. <laughs> you, as you went through so many steps of growth. Did you ever at any point in, in those times like have a moment of reflection and just really see what you were building or imagine how you I can just hear you being led. It's almost mm -hmm. either inside of you, like you were talking about this calling, but you're bouncing, you're going these places and you're going. When you get the call, you go. It's like, you know, you're on assignment and you move. Mm -hmm. Did you ever mm -hmm. at any, any point did you just look back and be like, Man, like I can't believe what is happening. I did that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I think I've had many moments like that. Um, you know, I like I said, I have elders in my life that really have taken me underneath their wing. I have a man, you know, I, I would do ceremonies, so sweat lodge. And so after I would travel to Little Rock, Arkansas and deal with maybe some crisis there, I would come back to Santa Cruz and my mentor would come to my house and he would kind of like pray over me and mm. do a ceremony for me. Or I would go into sweat lodge and pray, you know, for four rounds. And I remember I couldn't hang. I was like, oh my God, I'm a pass out. <laughs> but um, <laughs> always feeling spiritually connected and, and always knowing that the responsibility was bestowed on me, not because I was supposed to keep it for myself, but to share it with others yes. and always reminded of that. In New York, I think recently when I was planning the Women's March on Washington, never I had just come back to Oxnard after 20 years. And I had wow. produced a three-day juvenile justice conference called Growing Up Lockdown. It was painful coming back. You know, everybody was like, look, I remember your sister. I think it's it's not more so, it's not painful for other people. It's painful for me in wanting my sister to be with me, you know, um, sharing moments with her. And so I thought I was ready to go back home and do the work. And so I went back to Oxnard um, with Schools Not Prison Tour, you know, brought Immortal Technique, brought all these people, Chino XL, like I was excited. And, but in building it, Oxnard wasn't ready to receive the program or the conference or the whatever it was that I was bringing. But I will say I went back home and I told myself, I'm going to, I'm going back home to New York city. I'm a rest. I'm going to do some strategic planning and I'm sleeping for the rest of the year. Then Donald Trump gets elected. And that was a shock. It was a shock because we had gone out to get the vote for Barack Obama. And so you just thought we had it in the bag, right? I wasn't initially a Hillary uh, supporter in the beginning. I was a Bernie Sanders. And then ultimately I was like, look, I'm going to lean towards who's the, the candidate right now. Yeah. But I, rem yeah, I remember going to Washington, D.C. with Tamika and my son and speaking on Roland Martin. And on the way back is when we heard. And at that moment, it felt like my sister's death again. It was like you had this dit, this darkness over you. And I didn't want to get out of bed. But there was a call that was made to me maybe about 42 hours after um, his election when he won. And it was a guy named Michael Skolnick and Tamika Mallory and two women on the other end who I didn't know. 
And what Michael had said to these women is, I know two women who know how to plan marches in their sleep. And so that's when we were asked to be part of the, the what was called at the time, the Million Women's March, which was a complete erasure of Black women 20 years prior who had organized a march in Philadelphia. But it was a bunch of white women who said they're marching to Washington, D.C. And what happened is Black Twitter came after them. Ooh, and, don't play with Black Twitter. I know, right? <laughs> and so they needed somebody who could, especially women of color, who knew what they were doing. And so we came to the game with knowing what how we wanted to position ourselves. And so we, you know, ended up becoming the four national co-chairs, ended up asking Bernice King for her blessing to name it the Women's March on Washington, considering Dr. King and others had organized the original march and Mr. Belafonte had been a part of that as well. But as I was organizing it, it took us eight weeks to organize. Around January 5th, uh, my friend, uh, my who I had a crush on, who I was feeling at the time, <laughs> who's uh, now my husband, hey, was, like, <laughs> was like, do you actually know what you're building? He's like, do you know what what is going to come of this? And I and, you know, I was giving my heart. My my father was an elder. My family, I'd missed Thanksgiving. I'd missed um, Christmas and I missed, you know, New Year's. I didn't get to go back home because I was so focused on building towards uh, January 21st of 2017. Never in my life did I think there would be five million people wow. that came out on that day. Um I, we organize at the Gathering for Justice. We are grounded in Kingian nonviolence, which is the ideology of Dr. King. And we often talk about um, attack the forces of evil, not people doing evil. So it wasn't about Trump for us. As people of color, we're like, Trump is just a symptom of what's been happening in America since its foundation. Yes. I'm right. So happy and so to hear for it. us, <laughs> right, y'all were like, yes. <laughs> and so. So white women were like, but Trump is so horrible. And we're like, nah, this has been happening to communities of color. We got to give people something to march for. What are they marching for? So we created what were called the unity principles to, for, to create entry points for people to get involved. So whether you're marching for women who were incarcerated for better health care, for whatever it may be, right, env environmental. And, um, and so we were intentional about those eight weeks, but it took everything from us. And the time, the moment that I realized we created something bigger, way bigger than ourselves, was the night before in the war room when we were seeing some Antarctic place with snow freezing and the women were marching. Wow. Mm. And then the morning, it was probably five or six in the morning, when we got on stage and we just saw a sea of pink hats you know, although there was controversy around like the pink hat, yeah, because yeah, we're yeah. Like, you know, yeah. some people ain't got no pink nothing, you know. Yeah. Um, but all that to say, I think that was a moment where I felt all the 20 years of sleeping in benches, going into prisons, going to the prisons in El Salvador to support a peace process, sleeping on floors, being in community with the Little Rock Nine, sitting with Representative Jonathan Lewis, 20 years had prepared me to be in this moment and to lead. Um, never did I think 
in my life I would see something like this. And I'm just, you know, I keep on saying I feel blessed because, you know, when you make it out of Oxnard <laughs> and you're able to make change, it's a blessing. That's a blessing. That's because what you do is you take everything that had happened to you and you package it and you use it for good. And, and you've done so much. I asked myself, how old is she? 80? <laughs> and I was expecting to see this lady come on. I've been on the road for so long. I'm like, oh my goodness, you have done so much in such a short time. Yeah. The passion and the drive is just absolutely I know. Phenomenal. I'm like, okay, so where do we go? What do we do? What, what's next? <laughs> where do I sign up? We have, a, Kevin and I are married and we have a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old. And of course, now with everything that's happening, not just the COVID lockdown, but obviously the Black Lives Matter movement. And everything just really sort of a spotlight on our society and our culture and the erosion of it and the good, the bad and the ugly all is out to sea at this point. And I think our youth are so impassioned and just on fire about it. And I see our daughter is just like, I mean, she's all over it. You know, she's on her Instagram, 10 posts on her on her story every day. And they're all posing questions who, you know, about this, like how, how do you think about it? You know, here's here's the facts. And, and I, I'm so... Um, encouraged by our youth what can we do and our listeners that are that are feeling that passion are, are sort of like I don't know I don't know what to do but I see my kid you know and they're asking all these questions give us your wisdom on that especially now being a mother too so I think that there's a lane for everybody right so there's purpose in posting there's purpose in going out to protest there's purpose in policy uh advocates um there's a lane for everybody. If you know how to, um, if you're an artist, bring your art to the movement, right? If you're a DJ, bring your music to the, the movement. That's what I think. I feel like I'm a bridge. I always say like, I'm the person that um, bridges those that have access and those that don't. And so what I would say to folks that are just waking up, welcome, we need you. And the reason I say that is because seven years ago when Trayvon Martin was killed is really when the first hashtag of Black Lives Matter happened. Then we saw Michael Brown happen uh, six years ago or seven years ago, right? Um, and it was really the investment from different entities into the Black Lives Matter movement who everybody was very skeptical about. When I was organizing around police brutality and police unions were coming after us, nobody wanted to get their hands dirty. But what we have now seen with George Floyd is the fact that although it may be because we were in COVID, people are now realizing that this injustice happens more frequent than not, right? We know about Rodney King because we are old enough to have seen what happened to Rodney King and specifically what happened in Simi Valley when the police mm. officers were not held accountable, right? Um, but we've been fighting this fight and it's really been the foundation that has been set by the BLM movement, by those that have been working for quite some time in order for us to have these conversations and to have our 14-year-old daughter posting, right? Which is necessary for her to feel she has an outlet. And it's also necessary for her to um, use her voice to amplify the injustice that's happening. But you're right, change happens in different ways. You know, we talk about a multi-pronged strategy. People are like, why are you protesting? Why are you out in the streets? Um, there was a march that I recently organized in four days from LA. Um, and I went to New York City because what a lot of folks were seeing is that people were looting, right? People were out and they're like, that's not what Black Lives Matter is about. 
right? And so what we did is we have been working on policy priorities, which we call our 10 demands, and we concentrated, uh, we, we narrowed it down to five demands. And went ba- I went back to New York City and we put them on t-shirts, we put our demands on palm cards, we uh, set them all over the rally that we had. 35,000 people showed up that day wow. during COVID. There, it, we organized that in four days with partner organizations, looking at the policies that organizations had been fighting for for quite some time. After the, and mind you, there was a curfew, right? So not only were we like, you know, F your curfew, we were like, these are our demands. And so it takes people that are part of the same body to identify what the demands are, who could, you know, put the demands on t-shirts, who's gonna post on social media, who's gonna take the photos, who's gonna do the interviews, who's gonna, you know, call for the stage, who's gonna do the run a show. There's a lane for everybody, right? So if you wanna post, you're, you know, we welcome you to post. Post the right information. Follow us, you know, organizations that have been doing this work for quite some time. We welcome you. I think about our young people, especially because my organization is an intergenerational organization. We got our youngest employee it just turned 18 years old. And we say not only are young people, they're not just the future, they're also the present. And they're the greatest gift that we have. It is our responsibility to cultivate them and allow them to lead us as well. Movements of the past we know have been led by young people. Uh, Diane Nash, who was part of SNCC, was 17 years old and she was pregnant. Jonathan Lewis, another 17-year-old, right? So for us, it's making sure that we provide. I'm now an elder. I'm telling you, these young people are like, oh, Carmen's an elder. No, I'm not an elder. I'm an in-betweener. <laughs> but like it is my it is my responsibility to make sure that young people are equipped with the knowledge and the resources in order to properly lead. And so, you know, I welcome people to also financially support us that are on the ground. You know, our organization doesn't necessarily often qualify for traditional um, funding because, again, when you go up against the machine, it's a risk, right? Right. Um, As well as I'm Latina, I'm Chicana, um, and people are like, well, we're now going to be funding Black-led movements, which rightfully so, they should uh, fund Black-led organizations. And so, you know, although we have a leadership that is predominantly Black within our organization, the people that they see as a CEO is a Latina woman. Um, But I'm not going to stop fighting, even though we don't have resources, because in reality, there's so many resources with the human potential of people like you who are helping us elevate our voice. Huge. And it's so important that you said that everybody has a purpose in a lane, because for me, I was struggling with that, Um, having a best friend that's definitely um fighting for justice i don't know if you know soul garcia um from oxnard she she reminds me so much of you but um anyways i (laughs) uh talking to a lot of my white friends during this whole blm movement a lot of them felt like they couldn't contribute like nothing they could do would ever you know contribute to what's going on and i feel like everybody can do their part so I think that's a really impart- important And white statement. people have a lane, mm-hmm. right? White Absolutely. people, I think it's important for them to talk about the isms that exist within their family and begin to have courageous conversations. Check um, those to also members. donate. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
donate to causes, um, support the movement. Like I said, you know, there's a lane for everybody. People just need to find what they really love and contribute it to the movement. So I, I have another question and it's kind of taking the lane a little bit. And this was another video we were watching and it, again about your development. Um, when you first started, you had all this passion, you know, you were like, you know, I'm really willing to go out and die for this stuff. Whatever it is that I have to do, I'm, I'm in. And then <laughs> as you grow, you fall in love, you get family. And then there's all these things that, that change. And so I guess it was a, a kind of a, a, a two part thing is how do you deal with managing, balancing family? That's one side. And then, but then the other side is also just yourself, the self care. Like I heard you talk about coming back, have my prayer, my sweat time. How do you, how do you balance those things now that you've, you've grown and gone so far? Um, I'm definitely a spiritual person. And so I pray, I fall asleep praying. Right. Mm. Um, and I think I could potentially do a lot more self care than I I give myself. I've, I've never really put myself first. It's always been about service, 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 service. I think that happens when you lose somebody so young. It's like I was looking for purpose and I felt responsible for living life to the fullest, even if that meant me not sleeping. And you're right. Time has changed. Um, I went to El Salvador. I was being told I shouldn't go because my head could be served on a platter. And I was like, I'm going. I'm, I was prepared. I was taught to die for this. And it did change when I carried my son for the first time. Um, it, uh, it does something to you. You know, I, I was living for myself. And so although I often say I lived selflessly, um, a lot of it was selfish. A lot of it was not seeing my family for months um, because I thought I had to fight the good fight, um, being away from them for so long. I have 16 nieces and nephews that all look up to me and I was trying to be the best role model for them. And I thought by being out there um, that that's the way in which I could, you know, create a better life for them. Um, even though they missed having me because I'm the youngest significantly uh, from my older siblings. But, um, you know, I think what I ask for oftentimes is community care is like, check on me. You know, I ask my mm, staff, like, yeah. support me. I, I may need you when I don't think about myself. And now that I have a son, everything is about him first. I've, I'm also a new wife. Like, okay. and I didn't know Ooh. I was traditional. I prepare three meals a day. I'm on conference okay. calls oh. all day. <laughs> like, I, I I, don't know how, I don't, my mom would always ask me to pray for God to give me some gift. And I was like, I don't know what that gift is. And I thought I was giving that gift to the world. But, you know, now I, it's funny because she used to do that for my father. They used to do it for one another. And now my husband and I are like such a strong family unit. My husband runs a, a statewide policy organization of criminal justice reform Incredible. and our son is our priority. And I will say, um, you know, I wanted, yes, I went to New York city under COVID pregnant to organize this 35,000 person March but I also wanted to go to Kentucky to support my sisters from Until Freedom. And my husband was like, we can't go. 
And I was like, you know, my my <laughs> neck almost <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> and that was that was hard for me. But I'm in a I'm in a union. I'm in a relationship where it's no longer just about me. And although I may not be on the front lines as much as I used to be, or how much I want to be, um, I support my sisters in Until Freedom. I support other organizations. I I do the back organizing. You know, I was talking earlier about like you got to make sure there's a stage, there's a mm-hmm. permit, there's so you know, much. there's all these things. That's what I'm doing, and I'm also bringing speakers to the stage. Um, so I'm doing all the background organizing, and it's hard for me because I've been on the front lines for so long because I was so righteous. Um, I will say, and I don't know if y'all will touch on this, and I know that the time's also going, but we, me, Tamika, and Linda were accused of anti-Semitism, and that really broke broke us. Um, well, it didn't break us; it tried to break us, and a lot of it has to do with our political stance on Palestine. And they found a way after we had become Fortune 50s world leader, Time 100s world leader, um, organized the largest single day protest. They accused us of something that we never did. Right? It was basically you know, somebody, a a photo that came up maybe from three years prior, somebody else said something, but they blamed three women of color. And so for two years, I've sat my ass down uh, to reflect, to lean into the controversy and build with the Jewish community and also um, to understand, right? So instead of me running away from the controversy, as a moral leader, as somebody who believes in king and nonviolence, I felt it was important to build but um, so that was also part of the pain that I had to go through while I was also pregnant with my son. Mm. And so, you know, when I told you all like COVID, but also I'm protecting this one in my womb. Yeah. A lot of people don't know I'm pregnant because I don't ever want to go through the type of negative backlash, right? When you're a leader, a visible leader, you're easily attacked by unknown forces that we actually know who they are. Um, And it's hard, it's not easy. But you know, Tamika, Linda and myself, we've come on stronger. Um, They have a new organization called Until Freedom. But certainly part of my self-care during that time was to have courageous conversations. And it wasn't easy because I don't agree with some of the things in which, you know, I was being told to say or do. Um, And it's not really about you know, apologizing, you know, if, if reconciliation can't lead to mutual liberation, then you're only spinning your wheels, you know? I love it. Yeah. But that's good. Do you got, I have one other thing. Go, go, go. No, I love that. (laughs) I'm like, I got so many questions, but time is up. Just the one thing that you said, there was, there was two things. Number one was just the thing about conversation. The one thing that has been really tough for me, I'm a very quiet person at times, but it's because I'm always trying to listen for all the conversations before I really find my stance. And there's so many narratives and people this, and there's just words that are getting flown out. Do you find this? But no one's getting down to the conversation, the meaning of what it means to see where we actually all stand. I love the fact that you just mentioned that, you know, there was controversy that came up and rather than running, fighting that, you know, you you took a time to stop, think, engage, have conversation, because that's the only way you're going to really get resolution. So I, I, mm-hmm. I've been listening, looking for that, 
because it's not on the mm-hmm. media and everybody's just like, ang, 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 you know, uh, so it, it just felt amazing to hear you say that. The other thing, which you said you're on the back line with family, but I have to say also listening to your story that it, in a way you are really on the front line by taking care of your family because of your history and where you came from and you're actually building another strong unit. Your family is an example. I mean, so many of the families are destroyed in the hood and the communities and you're rebuilding that as well. And that is mm-hmm. such a huge foundation and example that, you know, as you said, so many people run and, you know, churches, so many people leave that. But that is the mm-hmm. foundation of the future and everything to come. So anyway, I just had to throw that in there. So we salute you. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> that. Yes. And I also want to share, like, some of the things that we're doing at the gathering is we're talking about decertifying the police. And it's as simple as this, Right. In other professions, when people violate the power and authority and trusted in them, they lose their, their license to practice. Doctors, mm. right? Lawyers, real estate agents, etc. 45 states have the authority to decertify abusive police officers. Mm. So I'm not sure if any of you have seen any of the memes that have gone out, but there's like a list of police officers who have had like abuse allegations, like 95 abuse allegations. If we actually applied the decertify on them the way we do with teachers and doctors, they would have lost their license and they wouldn't have been able to go to another department. There's a lot of controversy and conversation around defund the police. What we're talking about is like, if you have a seven or $6 million budget in New York for the police department, allocate 1 billion of those dollars back to black and brown communities and services that could support our young people. So there's a lot of conversations that are happening and it is, it is about leaning in. It's about having a courageous conversation. It's also about being okay. One of the things I talk about is is about agreements. What is my agreement to the three of you around our differences in thought or our differences in opinion? Mm. You know, so I don't leave disappointed. I don't leave mad at you, but it's an understanding of the agreement that I have walking into the conversation. It's not easy to have those conversations. It usually happens around religion in my house with my mom. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, um, I still love her. And I'm glad that she found something that fits her, right? Um, But I'm still going to debate her on, you know, her religion because I'm over here like, yo, we really were indigenous folks. We were like praising the sun. My mom's like, you're crazy. (laughs) 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 Well, I want to know all these years doing work with young people and guiding them and and, um, being a mentor has, I'm sure there's kids that have come and reached out to you and told you how you've changed their life. Do you have any unique stories that really impacted you? Yeah. So for uh, confidentiality, I can't really say their names, but I was working with a young girl when I was, uh, I became a probation officer to work within the system to change the system from within. And I remember meeting a young girl and every time the police was picking her up. And I remember going to her house to learn that her father was imprisoned. He was a a leader of a gang and her mom was addicted to meth. And this young girl uh, was left in the closet, you know, had been sexually, all these different things. And so I saw something in her and I was like, she's got mad potential. Do not lock her up. Don't put her in there because every time you lock somebody up, their, their chances of staying locked up are greater. 
Um, and we know that from the story that I told you, you could interrupt the trauma brain. I'm a nerd. I love the brain. So if you infuse young people with enough positive alternatives, the trauma brain is interrupted and they ultimately could lead a different path. And so I would make it a point to, if I went away, I was working at the gathering and helping build the gathering while I was a probation officer. And I remember telling my fellow probation officers, don't lock her up. If the cops bring her in, don't lock her up. She don't risk high enough. Like just take her back home. But I used to play basketball with her. My check-ins were not at the probation department. They were at a basketball gym. And so she would tell me about her dreams. She, I was a basketball coach at the time for girls. And she's like, I want to you know, play for you. And I was like, that means you got to get out of that, that community school and come to high school if you want to play for me. But all these young girls, I created a program for young girls uh, called Girl Space. And I would bring my basketball girls with my probation girls and run a girl circle. And they didn't know about each other's probation status. I just thought they were girls. But all those young people keep in touch with me. They're on my my Facebook. They're like (laughs) off to, they graduated college. One of them just had a baby. They all call me coach. Even my probation girls call me coach. Um, Uh. And that's what I keep saying. Like those, I saw myself, there was something about her that I saw myself, you know, I saw a little bit of myself in every young girl that I've ever supported, um, I've seen myself. And even the young men, you know, one of the the young people who works for me now, um, he came to us through a case where his brother was wrongfully accused of, of attempted murder and was in Rikers for two and a half years. And I got called by Sean King to work on his case. And um, my mentor, Nane, had gone up to me and said, hey, I see something in you when I was younger. And I was like, this old man, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. What like, you see. And so <laughs> then later he's like, no, I really do see, you, you know, you're going to go off and do great things. And I thought he was weird at first. I ended up doing that to this young man at 14. And I was like, look, I see something in you. I want you to come work for me. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. Long story short, he became at 16, our youngest Justice League member and at 17, our youngest employee. And so now he runs our youth leadership and engagement program. His name's Luis Hernandez. And so that's what does it for me. Yeah. Like there's this whole list of people that we need to interview now as well that you've mentioned. I mean, you're just surrounded by so (laughs) many powerful, activated people. And it's just so beautiful to see because this is what our nation needs so badly. You know, I mean, we've needed it for yeah. so long, but there's so much more of a platform now, you know, yeah. like it's mm-hmm. just, it's so incredible. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you've done. Yeah, of course. Thank you for giving us your time yes. because uh, we know it's super <laughs> valuable. I mean, you're splitting oh, your time goodness. now, you know, again, you know, with being a mother, it's like, I get it, girl. It's like, you're just oh. all of a sudden, like what? Uh, what just and you're just everything's going up in the air and you're catching it as it comes and doing the best you can with what you've got you know and kudos to you because clearly you're doing thank you (laughs) thank Um, you so much before we end though we love to ask all of our guests to complete the sentence with three to five words so it's simply i am blank i am an organizer I am a mother. I'm going to give you a bunch. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Go, girl. Whatever comes to mind. I am, <laughs> I am a sister. I am so many things. I am a lover of life. I am the beloved community. And we're going to turn around on you. Yeah. And we tell love you what. 
Speaking to you. Speaking to you. You are courageous. You are inspirational. I have to use two. It's like I just, the word powerful and impactful. Mm. Powerfully impactful. Yeah, you have powerfully impacted our morning. Yes. Uh. (laughs) You know, we would love to definitely get involved. Like I said, with our kids, if there's the opportunity to come and just represent. Our daughter actually um, is very involved in a group called Take Action that has grown out of a uh, musical theater group that she belongs to. But she's one of the only kids of any kind of color in that group. And the conversations that are being had in that group are actually very tough. And some of the kids are really taking it to heart because... Maya is black and brown and these kids are not and they don't see the world the way she does. And it's very impactful to just hear over here these conversations and, you know, her emotions are all over the place with it. So just to have a place to send her or to know, you know, just that connection, I would love for this this little group of kids to maybe at some point you just I don't know if they can get a peek into what you're doing or if you can somehow just lead us to a few websites or whatever it is that we can do to help them grow their their activity as they're impassioned to do so right now. Yeah, that works for the kids. And then all of our listeners, I'm sure that so many other people have kids, just I guess any socials where people can just find ways to get involved or where, where would people look to find you or uh, find the, the material to help get them started? Our young people are leading us. And so we would love to invite young people to be part of Justice League California if you're in Cali or Justice League New York City if you're in New York City. And so just reach out. We will make sure we get back to you. But there's events that are coming up. um, So we'll send that information to all of you. We have bail reform events. We're also doing a Black and Brown Solidarity um, Mm. March and also a town hall to really continue the conversation considering the political climate right now of how you know, if we come together, black and brown people, watch out, <laughs> it's over. And so they don't want us to wrap. You know? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is awesome. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah, Carmen. thank you. Uh, so much. So fun. Yeah. I was like, we got to keep it to 30. Look, it's like, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I know. I know. I, know. I was like, oh my God, it's going to be over. Yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. And, you know, much love to y'all. Thank you for listening. Interested in starting your own podcast? Visit us at IamMusicGroup.com. 